Please be seated. Welcome to each of you. First Chronicles chapter 12 this evening in our journey through the scriptures. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave to them, get their attention. Sunday night you'll be fairly lost without a Bible to be able to follow along with. And uh, so they'll get one into your hands. And then if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, certainly feel free to take that one home with you and uh, make it your Bible. So I want everybody to have a Bible. In chapter 12, as we come to this place, we remember last week in chapter 11, as uh, God was uh, laying out the names of David's mighty men that were a part of his military and establishing a military uh, when you're kind of reestablishing a nation, which is essentially what David was doing. The nation had, was in absolute chaos under King Saul and uh, was overrun by the Philistines and other neighboring nations and all. So you had to have a strong military in order to have a strong nation because you have to be able to defend yourself from attack from without and then also for problems from within. So not all nations in the ancient world had kind of a military and a police force like we do. The military kind of took care of all of it. And so God uh, touched the hearts of many, many men to come alongside David and to become a part of what they recognized God was doing through David. And so there was the top three men in David's military and then the next three men and then the next 30 men, all of them tremendous uh, men of great bravery and valor and skill and courage and strength and all of these kind of things. And it's interesting when you read through those list of David's mighty men, it's going to continue now into his army itself in chapter 12. Interesting when you read that and you read about uh, the kind of man that God caused to join alongside David. It wasn't just David. It wasn't like, hey, we like David's personality or this or that. Uh, I'm sure that uh, he had, had a very appealing personality. He certainly was very much a leader. But the whole issue was God's call was on his life, and the nation knew it, to become the, the second king of Israel, the next king of Israel after Saul. And so these men were aligning themselves with David, with the idea now of advancing God's plan for the nation. And they looked at their nation and they realized our nation is in trouble. Saul has squandered away a tremendous opportunity. And, uh, and so we want a righteous king. We want a godly king. And so they began to join themselves to David. You know, sometimes there's this perception of Christians who, that they're kind of, you know, uh, wimpy people in the world and this kind of thing. This is, of course, the people that really have never uh, walked with God uh, because, uh, to me, the strongest people being fashioned in the entire world are Christians that walk with God, that obey his word. Uh, what that, the character that that develops within our lives is a character and a, a depth of character, a quality of character that no other institution in the world develops so completely and with, with such variety. So you, you look at these, um, uh, these men and, and we see their, their greatness in terms of physically what they were like. It'd be kind of these, these guys that we looked at last week. We will get to the passage tonight. But we looked at last week. They're the kind of person you would want to, if you were in a car wreck, to look and you were stuck in the car and you were to look out the window, you'd want to see one of these guys pull up 
and pull you through the window and out to safety. But what do you do when, when the car wreck isn't physical? What do you do when it's spiritual? What do you do when it's emotional? What do you do when it's mental? And a person is just fragmenting and they don't know where to go in the car wreck of their life. And what they need and what God, why he fashions godly character in our lives is they don't need somebody necessarily with gigantic muscles, but someone who has great spiritual muscles to then come alongside that person and be able to, with those spiritual muscles, say, I know how to pull you to safety and now to help you out of the condition that you're in. And so even though here you have people sometimes that walk with the Lord and they, and they you know, we've got arms like rails or something, little stickmen or something, and, and so maybe not able to uh, sling a stone from a 100 yards and hit someone right in the forehead or something like that, but God has built character in, into their lives, into our lives, to be able to help people. Is, when I look at somebody who has walked with the Lord for a long time and obedient with the Lord, I always look at them and I realize that person has paid a great price to do that in this world that we live in. And they have learned an awful lot in their relationship with God by doing that. And so God is still producing greatness in in the way that only he can in human lives today. So now we come to chapter 12, and it begins to describe the larger army that was aligning itself with David. And we're told in verse 1, Now these were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was still a fugitive from Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men helpers uh, in the war. These men were armed with bows, using both the right hand and the left hand in hurling stones with a sling and shooting arrows with the bow. They were of Benjamin, Saul's brethren. So these guys were... uh, Uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. Saul is still alive. They came to David when he was at a place called Ziklag, where he was hiding at this point. Remember, Saul was anointed as king of Israel. And from the time that he was anointed until he became king, actually from the time that he was in Saul's court, part of Saul's kind of cabinet until he became king, was a period of ten years. That was a period of preparation in his uh, life. And, And so there was a Toward the latter part of that 10 years, he was living among the Philistines because he just Saul was trying to kill him, didn't want to be killed by a Jew. And he just kind of gave up on some level of God's call upon his life. He's just going to go live among the Philistines. And Ziklag is where he lived. And so it's kind of toward the latter part of that 10 year period of preparation that these men of Benjamin come and join themselves to Saul. They recognize the future is with David. God's future is with David for this nation. And though they were of the tribe of Saul and could have benefited uh, materially, financially by Saul continuing as the king, they recognized no matter how much wealth we can have by having the political clout of someone from our tribe being, you know, the president of, of, of the nation, what is more important to us is that godliness fills that particular role, and so they join themselves with David. They did so at great risk to themselves to do this. 
And they did so not only at a physical risk to themselves, because, again, Saul was still alive. He was in charge of Israel's military, and he could have easily begun kind of a manhunt to wipe these, what would have been considered traitors in his eyes, to wipe them out. So it was a risky thing that they did in joining themselves at this point to David, because David doesn't have a consolidation of power at this time yet uh, related to, to Israel. It's kind of, and the reason that I, I mention that is that David here, uh, in terms of the mighty men, in terms of who became a part of his army, including these men of Benjamin, they showed loyalty to David when he had nothing to offer them at this point in his life. It's kind of like the Elvis principle or anybody that's a celebrity and you read about them later on in life and you discover that uh, they keep all of the friends that they had in their youth or their young adult life before they became famous, who were their friends before they became somebody, and they recognize those are my true friends. And so they keep that kind of group around them because you can never be sure after you've made it whether these people really care about me, really care about the relationship, or they're just hangers on and they're trying to use the relationship to advance themselves. So these men, David, because they took this risk and they showed their loyalty and their friendship toward him early when it was still dangerous to do so, he trusted them all the way to the end of his life. And, uh, and they were faithful to follow him all the way to the end of his life because they followed him before he was ever a king. It was never about power and perks and pork and all that kind of stuff. It was about God's call on this man's life and let's get on with God's program for the nation of Israel because it hasn't been around for decades because of Saul. And so uh, very, uh, very courageous uh, men. This was a difficult stand. They put themselves and their families in danger to, to take the stand of right before it would be popular to do so. When we get to the end of the chapter here, there's going to be 300,000 men that are going to join David, but there's no danger in it anymore. Uh, there's no risk in it anymore. Now it's just this whole tidal wave that everybody gets it. But these guys jumped in uh, early. And so often you go through the hardships. Remember, David, he had 400 men for a time that were these kind of guys, and then it grew into 600 men. And they went through an awful lot together, and those relationships would keep them bound for the rest of their lives. It's funny how deep relationships develop uh, in the body of Christ. So often by going through difficulty, uh, by standing by people, recognizing God's call on their life or his purposes in their life, even when we stand to lose our reputation or lose this or lose that to do that, it's the right thing to do and, and how God honors that. We notice in verse 2 that they came to him armed with bows. They were able, kind of able to hurl stones with a sling and to shoot arrows uh, with either hand, with equal skill, left hand, right hand. So uh, that obviously there weren't that many ambidextrous people in uh, the tribe of Benjamin. So these were men who took and uh, they developed that skill. And of course, it was a very, very valuable skill in battle because it wouldn't be unusual in some kind of a fight, close hand-to-hand uh, -hand combat or something, for one arm to be disabled, and then all you did is just go to your other arm and continue to be effective in battle. So it was kind of got a, a twofer out of these guys. It was, uh, uh, you know, really 
uh, tremendous, their commitment to be valuable to the man that led them into battle. And the chief was uh, Ahiezer, uh, then Joash, the sons of uh, Shema'ah, the uh, Gibeathite, uh, Jeziel, and Pelet, the sons of Asmapheth, and Baraka, and Jehu, the Anathophite, uh, Ish, well, here they are. They're just listed uh, <laughs> all the way through verse 7. Listen, I just suddenly realized it was as painful for you as it was for me. And again, I do mention, though, if your name or my name was listed here, we'd, we'd read through the whole thing. So we remember these are real people and these are real names. This is a historical book, among other things. And so these were the guys that took the risk. God took note of it, wrote their name uh, in the book. And then some Gadites, some men of the tribe of Gad, they also joined David at the stronghold in the wilderness They were mighty men of valor. These Gadites joined themselves to David even earlier than the men of Benjamin. Uh, David is at this point in a very uh, precarious spot. Saul is trying to hunt him down in the Judean wilderness. He's still in Israel at that time. So his life was in jeopardy every single day. And yet these Gadites... Uh, again, they were looking for what was right. They were looking for what was godly. They knew the future was with David. And so they joined him, double jeopardy here, in the stronghold in the wilderness. They were mighty men of valor, men trained for battle who could handle sheer shield and spear, so cross-trained, whose faces were like the faces of lions. So maybe these big beards and long hair and that kind of thing. Uh, or it might be just... Uh, you know, the only lion I like to see is on television uh, or at the zoo where there's a considerable distance and not at the San Francisco Zoo. Had <laughs> some problems there a few years back. Is that like it's so sad that is that like your worst nightmare? And it happened to some people. Some of those animals got loose. I just don't. Well, listen, that's a that's a diversion we don't need to go on. But. You don't want to meet a lion. So it speaks of their fierceness, you know. And then not only were they fierce warriors, but they were also swift as gazelles on the mountains. And if you see pictures of Israel or you go there, especially in the Judean wilderness where David was at this time, and these mountains that you would climb. I mean, the, the ibexes and the, the, or rather the, yeah, the ibexes, the mountain goats and all, they can barely make it up. And these men were able to do it as well swift, able to do it quickly, able to do it with a great kind of grace. And so tremendous, uh, fearsome warriors. And so there's the listing then of, of these men. We'll go down to verse 14. And these were from the sons of Gad, captains of the army. The least was over a hundred and the greatest was over a thousand. And the idea in the original language is the least could defeat a hundred. And the greatest of them could defeat a thousand. In other words, these were just guys you didn't want to meet in battle. Really, really tough guys. These were the ones who crossed the Jordan on the first month when it had overflowed all its banks. And they put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. And so it gives an idea of their bravery. 
time where the Jordan River was flooded. Uh, they crossed it in its flooded condition, all that that demanded of them in terms of the cold and the difficulty and everything, and got to the other side of it and then proceeded uh, to defeat their enemies in a great victory, uh, widespread victory, even after having undergone the hardship. And so really tested uh, men. And then some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah. So some more from the tribe of Benjamin, some from the tribe of Judah. These are all these two were tribes down in the southern part of Israel uh, where David came from. They came to David at the stronghold and David went out to meet them. And he answered and said to them, if you have come peaceably to me to help me, my heart will be united with you. But if you betray me to my enemies, since there's no wrong in my hands, may the God of our fathers look and bring uh, judgment. And so David saw this particular group come. And he wasn't as trusting toward them. Doeg, uh, the Edomite, came from a, among this group. We remember as we were going through First and Second Samuel that there were a couple of cities that David saved their, everybody's skin in the cities. And then uh, when Saul found out that David was there uh, and went to the city to try and trap David, David asked the Lord and said, Lord, will these people betray me even though I've saved their lives? And the Lord said, they will betray you. It's a part of training for leadership, I guess. They will betray you. Get out of the city. So these, so he didn't, uh, he didn't trust everyone that came from these tribes not to be spies. And so he asked them point blank, are you here for good? And if you aren't, then may God bring judgment uh, on you. And it tells us kind of the danger that David is in. It does, so it looks kind of like as we just read through it that, boy, here's another group. Here's another group. Here's another group. And David's just having a great time every day. Every day his life is in danger. He doesn't know who to trust. He doesn't know who not to trust. And so uh, he's, he's, it's a very dangerous, perilous time for him. And so he's cautious here. And then as he interrogated them, about their sincerity. Then the spirit came upon uh, Amasai, chief of the captains, coming to him. And he said, in other words, the spirit just kind of uh, came upon this guy and he began to prophesy this encouragement to David that they were trustworthy. And by the spirit of God, he said, we are yours, O David. We are on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you. And peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. And so David knew that they were trustworthy, recognized the voice of the Lord through this man's life. And this kind of encouragement would have meant more than could ever be put into words to David at that time. Uh, to have these people come alongside him, but then also to hear uh, this uh, voice from uh, this voice of encouragement from the Lord. And so David, he then received them, made them captains of the troop. And then some came from Manasseh and they defected the tribe of Manasseh. They defected to David when he was uh, going with the Philistines to battle against Saul. And we remember that David, this was referring to the very last battle that the Philistines were going to attack the children of Israel. Um, uh, David was aligned with the Philistines as a part of their military attack that time God got them out of the situation but they were going to fight the battle that Saul was going to be defeated in as well as Jonathan and his other sons so just before that battle just before David becomes king of uh, at Hebron of the southern portion of, of Israel and ultimately become king over the whole nation. These came from Manasseh. So they come very late. 
but they came. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to show the courage that's required at that moment in time. And they had no way of knowing that Saul was going to die the next day in battle. And so it was commendable on their part. They were later than others, but they were earlier uh, than others still. And so they came to him. uh, But uh, they uh, at the time that David was going with the Philistines to battle against Saul, but they that is David's army did not help them for the lords of the Philistines sent him away by agreement, saying he may defect to Saul, his master and endanger our heads. And when he went to Ziklag, those of Manasseh who defected to him. Uh, were these men uh, captains of the thousands who were from Manasseh, the end of verse 20. And they helped David against the bands of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor, and they were captains uh, in the army. And remember, David left, and he went to Ziklag, where he had left, uh, he and his men had left all their wives and their children. They'd been taken captive by the Amalekites. And so these men of Manasseh joined David and his men in hunting them down and defeating them and, and bringing release of their families. For at that time, they came to David day by day to help him until it was a great army like the army of God. So at this point in time, David's like at the end of the 10-year period of his preparation. He doesn't know it's like a 10-year period. We know it. So we can look back and say it's toward the end of this. He doesn't know whether it's going to go on another 10 years. He knows he's going to be king someday, though he's despaired of it here and there. And uh, but uh, so we know that. But as time went on, Saul got crazier and crazier and uh, and more and more people kind of recognized that we need to step up and not just wait for this to happen between David and Saul. We have a part in this. So let's make a stand for what is right. And they began to just flow in like a, a great river and becoming a great army for David. Now. Um, ultimately, uh, when uh, is David becomes king, now, well, let's go to verse 23. Now, these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to rule over the kingdom of Saul, uh, uh, to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. So David ruled seven and a half years in Hebron, and even after he kind of became recognized as, as uh, you know, the king by the southern tribes, it would, it, and then it would, it would be seven and a half years before he would become the king over the whole nation, and then he would rule the whole nation for 33 years. And so these were the men and the, that came to him during that seven and a half year period. Again, uh, safer to come to him now at this point in time, but still, you know, some risk involved. And, and so they're standing up and, and, uh, and, and being counted uh, for, uh, for uh, doing the right thing. So all 12 tribes are, uh, people from all 12 tribes come, become a part of David's army. And we're told in verse 24 of the sons of Judah bearing shield and spear, 6,800 armed for war. The sons of Simeon, mighty men of valor, fit for war, uh, probably doing a lot of Pilates and, and uh, just getting... Uh, or the daily dozen or whatever it is, 7,100 of the sons of Levi, 4,600. Jehoiada, the leader of the Aaronites, and with him 3,700 came out of that 
just that family. Zadok, a young man, a valiant warrior, and from his father's house, 22 captains, I mean officers, became officers in the military. It's quite a, uh, quite a family. Of the sons of Benjamin, relatives of Saul, 3,000. Until then, the greatest part of them had remained loyal to the house of Saul. Of the sons of Ephraim, 20,800. Mighty men of valor, famous throughout their father's house. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were designated by name to come and make David king of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, refers to this understanding of the times, means that they recognized uh, that God had promised that David would become the next king of Israel. They recognized now is the time that that needs to happen for God's plan for, for David becoming king, that needed to occur. And so they stepped in to know what Israel ought to do. Their chiefs were 200 and all their brethren were at their command. Zebulun, the tribe of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out to battle, expert in war with all weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep ranks. And so a little bit of that military discipline of Naphtali, 1,000 uh, captains, and with them 37,000 infantry with the shield and spear of the Danites who could keep battle formation, 28,600 of Asher, those who could go out to war, able to keep battle formation, 40,000 of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Israel from the other side of the Jordan, 120,000 armed for battle with every kind of weapon of war. And so coming to a total of well over 300,000 men now that constituted uh, David's army just while he was in Hebron, you know, not counting what it ultimately became uh, later on when he became over the, uh, the whole nation in its uh, entirety. And so the uh, in is the Holy Spirit is writing this book to those these post-exilic uh, Jews. This is a great encouragement to them. God made promises to David, but it took a long time for those promises to come to full fruition. But they came to full fruition. So here they are. They're coming back from the Babylonian captivity into the land of Israel. And they're as, as weak as David ever was when he was fleeing from Saul. And yet God had made promises to him. God had made promise to these children of Israel. And, and God's promises will have the final say. So this history of David would have been, uh, this part of the history would have been a great uh, encouragement to them. It's also a beautiful thing to notice, I think, as it relates to the body of Christ. Because when Paul writes of, of Christians in the New Testament, he uses a lot of different imagery that comes right out of the culture. He uh, illustrates uh, Christianity and Christian ministry from the vantage point of athletics. And I think it's one of the great things about uh, doing some uh, athletics growing up as you realize the importance of the team concept, that a team can take go further as a team than any one individual. The importance of all of these things that comes together related to Christian ministry as well. He uses an awful lot of imagery related to the military because uh, as he's writing, as Paul is writing by the Spirit of God at that time, Rome dominates the world. Uh, the great entertainment of the day was the uh, athletic events. They saw Roman soldiers everywhere. So this was all imagery that Paul could just speak of the body of Christ in this way, and they would, they would pick up what it was that he was, was saying. 
And in the body of Christ, as we see, I mean, you look at the incredible uh, strength of these men. I mean, you're talking about unbelievable leaders who are submitting leadership to David. Unbelievable gifting, strength, experience, calling. It's just this is an incredible group of men that we've just uh, read about. And yet for all that they have, all that God has entrusted to them and they know that God has. They submit themselves to David's leadership. We're going to see in just a moment there in verse 38. What they expected and wanted of David was leadership. What David needed from them was loyalty. And it's the same thing that's true within the body of Christ. Is God, say, raises up a church and he puts people in a position of a pastor. and that It doesn't even mean the pastor is the most talented or the most brave or the most whatever within the church. But it's a position that God calls him to. And every church stays united and does what only a group of people can do together that cannot be done by any of us individually as men and women with great talents, great abilities, great history with God, great skill, submit themselves to work together toward that end. And and so a beautiful picture. Otherwise, every single church body in a city or in the world will splinter because of the strength of these people. But it's a beautiful picture here, kind of that strength under control, these tremendous uh, people. And yet they said, though I have this gifting, though I have these abilities, I have all of these things. I know it is my place to submit these things uh, to another leader that God has called. And so uh, great, great spiritual maturity among these men. And it's a great maturity uh, That same great maturity is required of men and women, Christian men and women, in any church that stays held together for a long period of time in a community, trying to make a difference for the Lord. People are submitting themselves to God's authority in order to do that. And it's always a beautiful thing. You look at the body of Christ, I don't care what church you look at, the body of Christ is a whole. One of the things that makes people marvel and, and, and come to grips with the fact that God must be real is that God is able to keep this kind of diversity together. And what, what unites us? Well, we can all agree on our love for the Lord and, and, and His Word and the desire to worship Him. And so all of these men of war who could keep ranks, they came to Hebron. They came with a loyal heart to David to make David king over all uh, Israel. And uh, the rest of Israel were made one to make David king. So this, I take it back, this was his total army when he became king over all uh, of Israel. And so they came to him with a, uh, a loyal heart. Loyalty is so important in the body of Christ, and uh, we're only going to learn it from God, a loyalty toward one another and God's work in one another's life. The world is becoming, I'll speak of our nation, uh, and, and because that's the culture that we live in, the, the, it's, it has become so selfish, um, and it's become so selfish 
that our future is in jeopardy. So it will have to be corrected, which means it'll have to go back to the way God does things in order to survive. Otherwise, it'll fragment into 300 million fragments, everybody different. So what we unite around as a nation that we can agree on as a goal for existence and a goal for a nation, uh, right now there's a little bit too much of what I agree about in this nation is me getting ahead of everybody else and getting as wealthy as I can and using everybody else. So this whole deification of selfishness in our culture is a great enemy uh, to loyalty, and, uh, and God is so wonderful to develop a loyal heart in us toward the, him, him, number one, but also the rest of the body of Christ. So, again, they wanted David to lead. That's what they expected of him. David needed a loyal heart from them, and that's what they brought. And so this was a time for celebration. David has become the king. The nation is united, and so they were there with David three days. Now, that's, that's the way you do a feast, three days, eating and drinking. I can't eat another bite. Give me another five minutes, and I'll see what I can do. Another drumstick. For their brethren had prepared for them. So they had these guys, food all coming in, and moreover, those who were near to them, from as far as Issachar and Zebulun, Naphtali, were bringing food on donkeys. So we're talking about... Well, you're talking about a lot of guys. So you're bringing in uh, food on, on, uh, on the animals, camels, on mules and oxen, provisions of flour, cakes of figs. That's dessert. For those of you who like desserts, got that little sweet tooth. Cakes of raisins. I'd rather have a hostess ho-ho, but this is what they had in those days. And so they had wine and oil and oxen and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel. Now, David in chapter 13, he then consulted. Now he is the king. Jerusalem is the capital. And he consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds, with every leader in the land. And so everybody, whether they're military or whether they're civil leaders, spiritual leaders. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out. To all our brethren everywhere who are left in the land of Israel, let's invite everybody and with them and with them to their priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us. Let's call everybody in the nation all together for this purpose and let us bring the ark of our God back to us for we have not inquired at uh, at it since the days of Saul. And so David is now king over the entire nation and the first and greatest desire of his life was to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to a tent or a tabernacle that he had constructed there uh, for that uh, purpose. You think about this, and there's a couple of points I want to make, even though I made them in the previous looking at this earlier in this. You put yourself in David's place here. He's inherited this whole nation, and he's got a lot of responsibility. I mean, there are... There are uh, enemies around them, all surrounding them in every direction, military enemies, people that want their destruction. There are roads to build. There's a government to put into place. There's a court system to put into place. All of these things that he needs to do. He's got to build a nation from from nothing. He's got to build that that nation up. 
And yet the very first thing that he wants to do, in, because it's a reflection of his heart, is he wanted to bring that Ark of the Covenant into the capital of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was kind of like a, a, a miniature hope chest. It was kind of a, a small uh, rectangular box. And it was the lone furnishing within the Holy of Holies, the tabernacle of Moses. And because the Holy of Holies represented the presence of God and it was the sole furnishing in that Holy of Holies, it came to represent to the children of Israel God's presence. So what David is proposing here is let's get God back into the center of our national life. More important than anything else is that we make this stand as a people to the whole world around us and to do this uh, ourselves. Let's put God back at the center of our national life once again. It was a very good desire that he had. It was the right thing uh, for David to do and, and, and and a great desire for him to have. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, this great furnishing related to uh, the, the uh, tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, about a hundred years earlier, near the end of the time of the judges, a time when Eli was the high priest, it really became nothing more than like a good luck charm for the children of Israel. They were living in disobedience to God, but they got themselves into a battle with the Philistines and they thought, oh no, we're, we're being defeated here. So bring the Ark of the Covenant in the battle and it'll be like our rabbit's foot. Surely God won't let us uh, be defeated out here on the battlefield at the risk of the Ark of the Covenant being taken by the Philistines. And God did not feel compelled to deliver them to victory at all. He allowed the Ark of the Co- he allowed Israel to be defeated because of their apostate condition, and he allowed his Ark of the Covenant to be taken by the Philistines. All of this happened a hundred years before uh, David. And God has his way of communicating to the Philistines. The Philistines thought the Ark of the Covenant. Here we've captured the Ark of the Covenant, the furnishing of the children of Israel, the representation of their God to them. They took this Ark of the Covenant into their temple of their God, Dagon, put it down in front of Dagon, and all went to bed. And the first they got up in the morning, the priest came, and Dagon had fallen off of his ledge and was fallen down flat in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They said, nobody saw that, nobody saw that. Nobody could take a picture with their phone or anything, so everything was safe. They got Dagon back, dusted up, got him on there and all, and the next day, night, the same thing happened, only he fell and his head was broken off and his arms were broken off, irreparable. And what God was communicating to the, children, to the Philistines was, you, you defeated my people out in battle. But you only defeated them because of their own disobedience. You never defeated me. And God began to plague the children of Israel with some kind of boils or tumors in Ashdod and Gath and Ekron, some of the great cities of the Philistines. And they could not get rid of that Ark of the Covenant fast enough. And so they built this new cart and they took two milk cows and and they made these five golden tumors, which were like whatever it was they were all getting. They made golden images of them and and five rats. They made golden rats and they put that in, in a chest to deliver to God. In other words, to say, God, we know this is coming from you 
and uh, and we cry, Uncle, we want to get rid of this. And so they sent the Ark of the Covenant headed toward Beth Shemesh. The men of Beth Shemesh were out in the field working. The Ark of the Covenant comes on this cart sent from the Philistines to them. They were so excited to get it. Somebody lifted the lid off of it and uh, a great slaughter occurred because now they're in, they're face to face with the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant without a mercy seat between them. I won't get into what all that represents. But so they put the lid on really quick and the ark was kept at Kirjath Jerim in the home of a man by the name of Abinadab, where it remained for 20 years until the time that Saul became king. And when Saul was a king, he didn't have a spiritual bone in his body. And so it continued to sit in that man's home, uh, Abinadab, in the city of, of Kirjath Jerim throughout uh, his uh, Saul's reign. And so David says, now let's go get that and, and let's bring it from there and bring it into uh, the uh, center of our national life. And then all of the assembly said that they would do so. This was a great idea. For the, pe- the thing was right in the eyes of the people. I mean, everybody's in agreement on this. And so David gathered all Israel together from Sihor in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah to Kirjath-Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. And so they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Uh-oh. When God commanded that they would make the ark of the covenant, the artisans with Moses gave the directions to Moses and to Aaron. This chest, this small chest, you know, not really not very big at all. Uh, it was to have four rings on its corners and it was it was made of acacia wood and, and then it was covered with gold. It was to have two poles that were put one on each side through the rings that were attached to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was always to be carried by the priests because the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God and the presence of God. The imagery is the presence of God goes forth in this world as it's carried by human beings, not by wooden carts. And so we carry because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit as Christians. We carry the Holy Spirit, the presence of God out into this world. It was a picture of all what he was going to do in the new covenant through Christ. So they come and they decide they're going to transport the Ark of the Covenant from Kirjath-Jerim to Jerusalem on that cart. And, of course, where did they get the idea from? They got it from the Philistines. And so they're going to transport the Ark on the basis of what the world was doing or the Philistines were doing instead of on the basis of what God's word demanded. And, and so this is what they they were up to. Now, somebody, I think, very, uh, very uh, astutely said, uh, observe concerning this cart. What is a cart uh, except uh, big wheels and boards? And any time a church comes under the control of big wheels and boards, 
to the neglect of the word of God, there's going to be trouble. It's going to be a mess. The church is to be under the control of the head, Christ, the control of the Holy Spirit and directed by God's word. That's how things move forward in the body of Christ. And they disregard that. It was ignorance on David's part, ignorance on everybody's part. But God is is still not going to overlook it. So they put that ark of God, put it on a new cart. It was good enough for the Philistines. And and uh, uh, and so it must be good enough for us and all. Then David and all Israel, they played music before God with all their might. I mean, their hearts are right before God. They're sincere. And they they were singing and then playing harps and on stringed instruments and tambourines on cymbals and then with trumpets. I mean, it must have been something. They're dancing like crazy and the spirit just wonderful celebration. God is returning to the center of our national life after all of these years of the judges. And Saul is so excited. And then they came to uh, Chidon's. Uh, threshing floor and uh, they hit some kind of a rough spot there and one of the ox stumbled and and the cart began to shake and then the ark began to shake like it was going to fall over and so Uzzah he put out his hand to steady the ark and then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark and he died there before God. Put yourself there. Earlier, in the earlier historical account of this, we're told that this parade was made up of 30,000 people. Dancing, singing, having the time of their life. And then God smites Uzzah and this Ark of the Covenant that's obviously at the front, uh, near the front of everything, and it all stops. Everybody's just stunned as they can possibly be. It, what in the world has happened here? Now people say, why did God smite Uzzah? Uzzah was a Levite. Uzzah was a Levite. And the Levites were responsible for the furnishings of the tabernacle and later the temple and assisting the priests in that way. And the Levites ought to have been familiar with the word of God and how the ark should have been transported. He was more responsible than David was or anybody else there. He didn't even as a Levite, this is how far the nation had gone down as a Levite. He didn't even bother to crack the Bible to find out how does God want the ark of the covenant transported. He just did it this way. And God brings the whole thing to a screeching I think it's important for us to understand. I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but it is important for us to understand that there is a difference between emotional experience in church and a spiritual experience. They were having a very emotional experience, but it wasn't a spiritual experience, not the kind of spiritual experience that God wanted it to be. And I do fear a little bit in this day that that the body of Christ is losing a discernment on the difference between a merely emotional experience, even within a church, between that and what is a truly spiritual experience. 
Anything that is done that violates the word of God, that means that God is not able then to participate in that event. He is forced to stand on the sidelines because he can't reinforce disobedience. And so here is this great emotional experience, but God isn't taking part in any of it. He's not affirming any of it. He's not blessing any of it. Ultimately, he has to bring his judgment upon it. So they are not allowing, they're transporting the ark in such a way. They are worshiping him in a way that is learned not from his word, but from the world. It's disrespectful toward God and his commandments. And so the Lord is not allowed to participate. And God likes to participate in church services and in home fellowships and in worship services and in Christian concerts. He wants to participate. He loves to do that, to be a part of it. But if it's done the world's way and if it's done in disobedience, then he is forced out. Do you know that the... the, the, Um, the most important person in the room when God's people assemble is the Lord himself. He attends church and he desires to participate in that church service and to have somebody answer that phone. Whoever is going to don't want to make you feel bad. I just heard it. But he wants to participate in in the service Sometimes, and the reason I mentioned is sometimes people have this, and I've heard it so many times through the years, but you can have somebody not, they can leave here, they can leave any other church in town or any other church in any other city, and they, they will walk away from uh, the, the service, and you ask them, how was the service? And they'll talk all about it in terms of what it did or didn't do for them. Well, God wants to bless us, and he knows that we need blessing. But what this church service is all about is blessing him. It is that he is enjoying himself in this in this church when we come together. And that can only be done as we obey his word. There's another thing that happens within the local church that everybody has to be careful of. And it's it's an individual basis. And sometimes you can look and say, boy, this guy he talks about holiness all the time, or God's word talks about holiness all the time, and obedience and all of this thing. And I mean, don't we have that thing uh, down yet? I don't know. He, God repeats himself a lot, so it must mean that we've got to hear it a lot. I already talked about that last week. But there can come a point in a local church where there, it, 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 and it's a, it's a tipping point, where the lives Within that church body, where disobedience to God's word and living the world's way reaches a critical mass. It doesn't mean everybody everybody in the church is living unholy, but it reaches a critical mass where God looks at it and says, I can't enjoy myself there anymore. He did it with the children of Israel. I mean, he literally, uh, their disobedience became so great that the Holy Spirit was driven out of the temple in Jerusalem at the time of the kings. He just left. He said, "I, I can't hang around here and even watch what's going on. It hurts too much. 
And that can happen in a local church. I don't say that it's happening here. I, I, I don't have any sense of danger related to that. But to realize that in our own lives, we bring something into any room we come into as God's people. And that's why sometimes a church can go along, go along, go along. Nothing really changes. But as time goes on, sometimes Christians feel like, OK, I'm a little bit more mature in the Lord. So I'm going to start to, you know, uh, cut myself some slack related to this sin. I'm not going to be as strict over here and this and this and this. And then a whole body does the whole thing. And then everybody wakes up one day and says, how come I don't sense God in this place anymore? How come I don't sense him inhabiting the praises of his people in this place anymore? What has happened to the participation of God? And sometimes our own, not just something big like this, but our own, whether we're being obedient to the Lord or or we're walking like the world or walking as, as God's word teaches us, it can it can be the beginning of the end for uh, the, the work of God as we would take and apply these principles to a local church, to our fellowship uh, here. So God brings the whole thing to a screeching halt. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. His first reaction was anger. He's been ho- he has been publicly humiliated. This was his idea. God has busted this whole thing up. He knew his heart was right. He knew he was trying. He, this whole, and so the, his first reaction was he became angry uh, over all of this. And therefore the place and the death of Uzzah, all of this coming to a screeching halt. And therefore the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And then another emotion came over David, a little more appropriate than anger. He was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? He realized we've done something really bad here because I know God. I know his grace. I know what he's willing to overlook. I know what he's willing to come alongside of. I know that I know him. I know how he wants to participate in an event like this. Somewhere we have made a terrible, terrible mistake here. And so you just picture it now. 30,000 people in silence. I don't know. I don't know the last time I've been in a crowd of 30,000 people, maybe a 49er game a million years ago, preseason. That's a lot of people. And to a person, they walk the 10 miles back to Jerusalem and the whole thing is weighing on them. Say, man, why would God do that to David? David has. 33 years of decision making in front of him is the king of Israel. He is going to make uncountable thousands of decisions that are going to affect God's people and affect God's ability to bless his people. And so God, as hard as this lesson is, God steps up and right at the beginning of David's united reign here, he's going to drive home one single great point to David. And that is it requires obedience for him to be a part of this kind of thing and for him to participate in the way that he wants to and to enjoy himself in the way that he deserves to be able to enjoy himself. And so David would not move the ark with him at that point 
to the city of David. And, of course, you put yourself in this place. It says, where can we put this thing? And so they took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And so imagine that. Obed-Edom, we're, we're putting this ark in your family room. <laughs> now, could you and I, at a moment's notice... Allow the Ark of the Covenant to come into our house. Well, I think I've got to clean a few things up a little bit here, on, you know, or we'll all be dead. So here's, here's the holiness of the house and the beauty of this man's love for the Lord. And so the Ark remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months, and the Lord killed everyone in the house. It's not what it says, does it? It says, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Communication, there's nothing wrong with the ark. There's nothing wrong with the heart of God and his desire to bless his people. There's some other problem here. And David is going to search out that problem and he's going to fix that problem because in a couple of chapters they will successfully bring the ark of the covenant into the city of Jerusalem. So let's stop there tonight. We just ask the worship team to come forward for a moment this evening and we can spend, uh, 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 maybe have the ability to lift up a couple of worship songs to the Lord as we just allow this passage to freshly touch our lives here tonight, whatever way the Spirit would want to do. And uh, in closing, allow Him just to put those final touches on our lives under the weight and the beauty and the encouragement of his word this evening.